Welcome to Comic Book Keepers, where we talk about comic book characters, their history, and their impact on our lives. I'm Lance, and today we return to the Crisis on Infinite Crossovers format to talk a little bit about the Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen Titans. I could not cover this series without the uh, help of two of our podcasting friends from Dear Watchers Podcast, Rob and Guido. Welcome both of you to the show. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yes. The real question is, are you the Teen Titans or the X-Men? So that's the real question. <laughs> that's such a hard question. <laughs> I Oh, man. I When we did our like top five comic book teams episode not too long ago, both Chris and, and my favorite team was the X-Men. But if I were to have to... Uh, choose like a tv show like an animated series to just throw on and watch throughout the day i would pick the teen titans <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard choice how about both of you yeah i'm 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 an x-men person through and through though in this issue i think i'd actually i'd be okay with being on the teen Titans side of things so Right. Yeah, I, I I have to confess, I've never even read the Teen Titans before reading <laughs> this. I've seen the little bit of the TV shows, but so I was definitely an X-Men person. But I agree with you, Gita, after reading this, definitely Teen Titans. <laughs> so, both teams are just so much fun, and there's reasons why they got mashed together, which we'll mm-hmm. get into. Mm-hmm. But I knew that when... Uh, I knew I wanted to do a crossover with both of you specifically in this format because your show is so catered to doing these multiversal or omniversal storylines, if you will. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do over at Dear Watchers? Sure. Yeah. So we are a multiversal or omniversal podcast. So we started off about a year and a half ago. We hit up to episode 70 something. And we started off covering Marvel What If stories and really tackling the stories that might have influenced that alternate universe, then that alternate universe itself, and then what might have come after. But since then, we've really expanded to also focus on really any alternate universe. So we've tackled Elseworlds. We've loved talking about Amalgams, which is a great crossover, perfect for today's episode here. And then also into creators as well, creator interviews and really kind of talking about what influenced them, especially in terms of their love, hopefully, of multiversal storytelling. And I think like you guys, we love world building and character Mm -hmm. development in story. And so that's I saw that connection listening to you for however long it's been now. And the fact that you do these sort of what if questions at times in your episode as a way of just exploring what it is about a character or a story that we love. And so that's, you know, essentially the same thing we're doing. We're just doing it through universes and rules and canonicity and all of those cool things. Yes. And uh, I am also a very big fan of your show. Uh, Most recently, you had an episode about Batman and you almost made me cry. (laughs) (laughs) it's the only episode where it did make me cry while recording yes so yeah (laughs) we had a guest cry once and then this is the first time i think the host cried (laughs) yes nice so if you want to get the tears flowing check Mm -hmm. out dear watchers (laughs) we'll talk about all their links later and we'll share all of that information in our show notes just like every other issue of crisis on infinite crossovers they are always dedicated to the life legacy and memory of george perez because he was the king of crossovers so i of course have to ask robin guido what are your favorite stories from george perez i find it really hard to choose and i spent a lot of time with this question in preparation but i decided to go with the one that was probably the most exciting one I was buying every month when it was coming out and really transformed my way of thinking about events. And that was Infinity Gauntlet. I think his art in Infinity Gauntlet, and I I love Jim Starlin too, for the same reasons, but his art in Infinity Gauntlet is the, is a solid 50%. Starlin's writing, it's a perfect blend comic where the writing and the story hits but the art is fast and you have all these characters and all this cosmic 
drama and i love 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 infinity gauntlet so i'm going with that great choice i i was lucky enough to find a there was this of course in the 90s so there they did a a foil like a hollow foil uh variant of the collected edition of infinity oh, gauntlet. i remember you mentioning this on an episode yeah. and it it piqued my interest yeah so, and, and the cover was done by starlin oh so cool yeah so there's that one how about you rob so it's hard for me to pick two but that for a very different reason than Guido, and that's because i'm not super familiar with george perez's work because on our podcast I I love comics, but I'm not as big of a superhero comics reader as Guido is. But I have recently just read some of George's earliest uh, work or earliest pencil work because I'm doing a big Squadron Supreme reread. So I read was actually reading some of his first work that he ever penciled back in Avengers 141. So it's a very early, I think, with his work with Marvel. So it was very interesting uh, to take a look at that. So definitely kind of at the early part of his career. And then the other thing that one thing we covered on the podcast that he didn't write, he didn't draw, he inked is the Alan Moore story. Whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, the Superman mm-hmm. story, which is kind of a farewell to some of the uh Gold, you know, classic Superman creators, and it's a great story. And obviously, even though he was just doing the well, I shouldn't say just. Even though he was inking it, he wasn't writing it or penciling it. I def, I'm sure he lent a lot of his talent to making that such an amazing uh, book. Great choice. I think it's about time we dive into this episode of Crisis on Infinite Crossovers. Crisis. 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 On Infinite Crossovers. Now, this episode that we're covering today, or this issue we're covering, is one of the earliest crossovers between Marvel and DC. And prepping for the episode, I thought I knew what the original one was. I, I had it in my head that it was the first uh, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man issue, <laughs> but it wasn't. It's not the first time Marvel no. and DC clapped. <laughs> Are you aware of which one it was? I am aware of The Wizard of Oz. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was blown away by that fact. So in 1975, Marvel and DC co-published the MGM's Marvelous Wizard of Oz. Wow. I would, not in a million years of guests, that would be the first thing they collab on. <laughs> Yeah, it was, I think if memory serves, there's a good bit about it in Slugfest, which is that great book about Marvel versus DC. And they talk about that. It was almost sort of a litmus test for them. They were like, no, let's not use any of our own Mm -hmm. IP. Let's co-publish something else and see how we can do business together. And that was sort of the test for the stuff that we then end up with. That's a crossover. They both have a lot of witches in their canons, right? And what's a talking scarecrow or talking tin man? A tin man is kind of like, you know, cyborg right there, you know, mechanical man. So it it makes sense. (laughs) I feel like after you saying that, I need, we need to do like a fan casting or not a fan casting, but of like casting (laughs) the Wizard of Oz, but with Marvel and DC characters. Totally. Oh, wow. That is that is a perfect idea. <laughs> we're we're gonna run that with that. Its whole own episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we then move into their actual first superhero collab. Mm-hmm. So in night, not much later in 1976, we get the uh, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man uh, issue, and it has like the the byline like Battle of the uh, what is it Battle of the Century. I think is the byline mm-hmm. for it. And and then obviously we get if we get the second Superman uh, Spider-Man crossover then the Batman Hulk crossover and then eventually this Teen Titans uh X-Men issue. Funny enough, before we even got this issue crossover between Superman and Spider-Man, found out that in the early 1970s, so there was the author and literary agent David Obst had suggested to the Marvel Comics publisher Stanley and DC Comics editorial director Carmine Infantino 
that there should be a feature film crossover featuring Marvel, Spider-Man, and DC Superman. Uh, however, at the time, there was already plans for a Superman film with Warner Brothers and a series, uh, a live-action TV series of Spider-Man as well. And instead, the two decided to settle on making this comic book crossover. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> There's an alternate universe to imagine that that instead of starting with a comic, it started with a movie crossover. I think at that point, the companies probably would have just merged. And right. that's the alternate universe wow. we live in yeah. now. <laughs> that, it, it blows my mind that there would be so much more like litigation and discussion about a film <laughs> rather than just doing a comic mm -hmm. book together. So I think you're absolutely right with, with all those things combined, we might've just had part, maybe even like the amalgam universe. Yeah. <laughs> instead of Marvel <laughs> and DC. Right. That's true. That's true. They sort of end both of their individual brands and create the, 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 Combined mm -hmm. one? Wow. <laughs> I know in the book Slugfest that Guido mentioned, they they the author goes into all the detail with even Superman versus Spider-Man about they had to negotiate who threw the first punch and ev every single thing was negotiated. So it's very interesting to then think of them really, truly collaborating on a project together. It, and it always has to be neither side can look bad and mm -hmm. both sides have to mm -hmm. win. Yes. It, that's why there's always that we're against each other and then there's the team up and then they beat the main villain. <laughs> and it's formulaic, <laughs> but I don't care because I just want to see more of our favorite characters from different publishers connect and do these amazing stories. Yeah, exactly. That first Superman Spider-Man issue uh, came out in 1976 and then we didn't get the follow-up issue until 1981 then again later that year in 1981 we got the batman versus the incredible hulk which finally brings us to 1982 with x-men and the new team titans now this creative team is just pretty much all powerhouses <laughs> so we have uh the scripter chris claremont the penciler walter simonson the finisher is terry austin we have the letterer, and I apologize if I butcher this last name, Tom Orzikowski. I believe that's how I say it. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Uh, colorist is uh, Glynis Ween and Rick Taylor. Editor is Louise Jones, and who is actually Walter Simonson's wife. Uh, but I think that professionally she kept her last name for throughout the books. They might not have been married yet then. Oh, okay. Because she does become Louise Simonson. So she does change her name at some point when she writes New Mutants and Power Pack and stuff. In Chris Claremont, I have this collected edition that I was reading it from. And in Chris, Chris's introduction, he does talk about them being married at their house. So I think they were oh, married, but so maybe, maybe she, she hadn't changed her name. Didn't change her name professionally yet. yet. Mm -hmm. She does ultimately. So that's interesting. Yeah. And and then just finishing out that team, Jim, Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief and Len Wein was the consulting editor. And then we also have uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez who were part of the like collaborative creative team. They were, how would you describe them? I'm trying to think of the right word. In terms of their work on this issue, because they yeah. created Teen Titans, of course. But on this issue, yeah, it feels like they were maybe being consulted since yes. you and I learned about the mm -hmm. sequel they were then going to be developing with them on as the team. So I'd say consult creative consultants, perhaps. <laughs> right. So we have, that's exactly the word I was looking for that I could not think of. So they were consultants <laughs> on this issue. Now we kind of get into the, the dynamic of really what went on behind the scenes while creating this issue. And uh, I'm assuming, Guido, I'm assuming it was you that sent me the, yes. those issues. So could you talk a little bit about those fanzine magazines that gave us all this additional information about the series? Yeah, well, the two places that I consult for pretty much anything I want to learn about are either some of the vintage fanzines and the one of the biggest is Amazing Heroes, and so there's an issue of Amazing Heroes from 1983, 1984, that is a feature all about Teen Titans, but has an interview with Wolfman and Perez, and they talk about the sequel. And then I also look at the Tomorrow's publication back issue, which is all about the Bronze Age, and they did a team-up issue back in 2013 
that has a feature where they talk to Chris Claremont about his writing and work on this and how it came about. There's some really interesting information that comes out about this series. So (laughs) considering the fact that Amazing Heroes 50 came out first in 1984, maybe we dive into the information we we get from that one. Great. So uh, we find out that during this time period, you had... Uh, Marvel, who was in charge of the Superman-Spider-Man crossovers. Then you had uh, DC that was in charge of the Batman-Hulk crossover. And so the creative deal that the companies had would mean that they would just flip-flop between the cre- whoever would be the creator as far as if they would be at Marvel and DC. So with the Uncanny X-Men New Teen Titans crossover, it fell back over to Marvel. We ended up having Chris Claremont being the uh, person tasked with writing this particular issue. It was in the office of Louise Jones that they were discussing kind of the, the general plans or, or layout for the the uh, issue that would come to terms. And I really liked something that uh, he said in that, or uh, with Claremont, is he likes to start stories with a visual. So this is Chris Claremont. For me, stories often start with a visual image, a core element from which the rest of the tale organically grows. In this instance, I knew from the start that it would be the vastness of the celestial stage at the end of everything, so far from what we consider space, that what appear to be stars scattered few and very far between, overhead are in reality whole galaxies. In the heart of that darkness flares a light, but flare is a weak word for a moment that should rival the first primordial spark that that ignited the first star to blaze in the heavens when the universe was born a light that coheres into human form, a creature of terrible beauty, an archangel made flesh, who demands imperiously, who summons Dark Phoenix, to be answered attitude for attitude by a giant of a being who considers himself her match in every respect. I, Dark Side. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good first image. Beautifully, yeah. Yeah, it's a great image, beautifully overwritten by Claremont, <laughs> as he's prone to, but it's a great, great image. <laughs> and and if you would help me, who who just happens to be walking by when this conversation is had? Well, that Walt. would be Walt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we have Walt Simonson that just happens to be walking by, and he hears Darkseid, and he pops his head in and basically just says, <laughs> uh, did I hear Darkseid? and after a two-minute conversation basically decides that he is going to be the artist for this issue yeah which is so cool and it makes sense that if you're a marvel artist and you hear the opportunity to draw dc character Mm -hmm. and you've been into that you're gonna grab at it (laughs) so fun that you would think that there's these big plans that were going on at the company as far as who was going to be doing what, but it literally was just this random conversation that led to someone popping their head and being like, yeah, I'll be a part of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we just recently interviewed the widow of Mark Gruenwald, Kat Schuller Gruenwald on our podcast and, and th- the stories from the Marvel bullpen, and I'm sure DC was probably similar, but Marvel, especially this seemed like it was happening all the time. It was such a loose atmosphere, uh, such a non-corporate atmosphere. I mean, today, the artists, in many cases, don't even live in the same countries as the writers. So you certainly aren't going to have this kind of very casual collaboration that's that's going to stem from this, this other legend just happened to uh, overhear a conversation that's going on. It's yeah. it's just happenstance, but it worked out beautifully because Simonson's work in this issue is just beautiful. I love his art style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a good, great sort of amalgam of a DC house style and a Marvel house style at the time. So it works well in that regard, too. Agreed. Now, was there anything else from this particular, th- this magazine that stands out to you? Um, should I mention the sequel or should we wait on that? Yeah, let's, let's talk about it now because I would be remiss if we forget to talk about it at the very end. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just think the sequel potential sounded amazing. And you have Wolfman talking about how Claremont actually came over to his house and 
gave him the whole rundown of what was going to be happening in X-Men for like two years, typed it on a typewriter for him so that he could then plot the sequel in such a way that it reflected that. And then in the same issue, you have the Perez interview with all the background on the JLA Avengers, which was a 30 year project that was a nightmare. And the way that that project not happening meant that he was refusing to do X-Men Teen Titans because of all the editorial business that couldn't get resolved, which is really a shame. I mean, there's not another Marvel DC crossover for I think 11 years until the nineties at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So you see that really it was just personalities and people who couldn't figure out how to work together killed a lot of really cool projects, including the sequel to the book that we read today. Yeah. Perez was not the happiest, especially with Jim Shooter. (laughs) Uh, And, and I've, and I know both of you know this too, like with George Perez, he was constantly being known as the, like one of the nicest people in the industry. There's so many amazing stories about him over like decades of being in the industry. And even the individual that was writing this particular uh, uh, article mentioned it was one of the few times that Perez publicly showed that he, he was upset mm-hmm. because he, he basically had prepped all this work and wanted to do both of both the JLA Avengers series as well as doing this, uh, the sequel to the uncanny X-Men Teen Titans crossover. And he was rightfully upset because this weight for having to do the issues led to him missing a couple issues of the new teen Titans. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine having these very large scale projects that you are going to be paid for both fall through and then also missing out on the other work that you were trying to continue. Yeah. Agreed. And he, and he is quite unfiltered, which I appreciate. And, and I mean, that's some of what I think made him such a likable person is he was honest. Uh, he was very clear in here about the income he was losing and mm-hmm. how it was bad for the fans. I mean, so he's not he's not being unkind, but he is definitely being clear and honest. Yes, so. it's it's appreciated. <laughs> yeah. And something that you said, Guido, just a minute ago about how Claremont was talking about kind of the plans for the next two years for the X-Men when Perez was making plans for the issue, they include the word they wanted it to be in continuity. So mm-hmm. they they wanted this issue to fit within both of these worlds because rather than being a, a thing where one team jumps into another universe and having to explain all that away, they were a uh, part of like, the, what was it like a common earth? There was this particular the phrase. crossover earth crossover earth. It's, it's yes. earth crossover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they make comments throughout the issue about how I wonder why we've never run into mm-hmm. the, the X-Men before the Teen Titans before. So they basically were able to be on this crossover earth and that explained away a reason. So they didn't have to get into this whole issue of having to just travel between universes. And you can just jump right into the story. Totally. Yeah, I only I so I just discovered there is actually in sci fi. It's something called crossover Earth. And I only just learned about it in the 70s. Someone actually attempted to create an index of every single fictional world and find all of the points at which they cross over. So this included way back to like Bram Stoker's Dracula through Sherlock Holmes and pulp stories. and he mapped out in two books in the 70s the crossover universe which was the universe where all these fictions coexist so i think that's a little bit what inspired them here to start doing that with marvel and dc it was around the same time actually and yeah it's really fascinating yeah could you imagine just because dc constantly doing like those revamps within the company can you imagine someone trying to make continuity wise everything makes sense now between two (laughs) publishers (laughs) <laughs> no not not at all we would require a lot of retcons <laughs> that would it's just a headache and a half <laughs> all right so now that we've we've gotten the backstory between how this issue really came to be let's just get into the story
basically dark side has some kind of grand plan to turn earth into another apocalypse i think that's what he's always trying to do right so he (laughs) one of the ways he wants to do that is by resurrecting the phoenix force so he is trying to resurrect gene is dead at this point resurrect the phoenix force and professor x is kind of sensing this somewhere and we basically have the x-men are and the teen titans who are kind of put together we don't have lance what you were kind of saying before and we can talk about this further we don't have that classic scene where okay we're all gonna battle now and then we're gonna be friends they're kind of always from the beginning kind of working together there's some suspicion on the part of the teen titans but that's kind of quickly overcome and the dark side is able to resurrect the phoenix force but really we have our two teams kind of working together and it's kind of almost that love saves the day almost because it is the memory that scott cyclops has of gene that kind of is able to repel the phoenix back into the never into the universe and yes the source wall the source wall and and dark be dark side be defeated and Deathstroke the Terminator is in there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He pops up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just never imagined Deathstroke and Darkseid teaming up. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Agreed. Especially when Darkseid is resurrecting Dark Phoenix. What the hell does Why? he need Deathstroke for? Yeah. <laughs> well, and Deathstroke keeps talking about that Darkseid is paying him. Does Darkseid have cash? <laughs> is this apocalypse money i don't know if it's good on earth i was a little confused what deathstroke's getting out of this deal yeah i don't know if that uh the monetary exchange will be in deathstroke's favor <laughs> <laughs> so we we open on this issue with this uh great uh kind of a splash page showing the wall which is one of uh, a kirby creation so th- this wall that basically stands at the end of the universe and behind it is what is beyond. Uh, there, there's so many different explanations for what the wall is that I, I also kind of confused myself when I was doing research <laughs> for the episode. But you can imagine that it, it's just what is beyond this universe. And to get really what he wants, Darkseid has called upon Metron and his Mobius chair to basically blast through this the the wall in order to put things in motion in order to uh resurrect the dark phoenix yes do either of you know why the wall needed to be pierced for the dark phoenix to come back (laughs) i guess because she's dead that's how i made sense of it because the source wall like you said, everything beyond it is beyond the universe. So if we assume that the Phoenix dead is beyond, mm. then he has to sort of break the wall, enabling him to resurrect her. Okay. That's how I interpreted it. I went into it being very surprised because when they're talking about this wall and Metron there, I thought the wall was going to be the wall between the two comic book universes. And, yeah. and you know, you and I are watching uh, his dark materials right now. And I thought it was going to be that kind of thing where, you know, you on that show and in that, in those novels, you have the wall that's separating the two worlds. So I thought, Oh, that's why we need the chair. It's going to bring down this. So I was very surprised when, Oh, no we're really not gonna get into in depth we're gonna have this kind of as as we were talking about exist on this common earth instead i think a hundred percent if you if you go into this not knowing what the wall is period a hundred percent you would be thinking yeah he needs to go into this other universe in order to get the power that he needs in order to kind of move forward i i found it so funny that as soon as that ends like we see him go through the wall and then it just jumps to the X mansion. And the first thing we see is a fastball special between Colossus and Wolverine, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things to see because you, for a fact, Wolverine hates it every single time. Well, and I love that, the, that whole interaction because that's also where Xavier is telling him to, for the umpteenth time, call me professor. Cause he called him Charlie. And then he says, sure thing, Chuck. So yeah. it's a, it's a whole great opening 
with the voice of the X-Men, obviously it's Claremont. So he's got it down. Yeah. Claremont had so much fun. You can tell he had fun writing this issue because everything's very witty. It's fast paced. And I had a smile throughout this entire issue because there's so much, so many like interesting elements thrown together. Yeah. And even when there's elements that are confusing, like even that splash page is kind of confusing, but because it's Walt Simonson's art, it's really cool to look at. Mm -hmm. Like I have no idea what's happening in it. I don't fully (laughs) understand what the wall is and who's where, but it's so cool to look at. So it doesn't matter. Yes. Art can save so much in a comic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and even even Metron goes through and then his chair will wind up playing a huge role. But then he isn't there. He only kind of emerges at the end, very Uatu like to kind of put a coda on the issue. So I don't know where he went after he went through the wall because his chair kept going, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we would have found out more about Metron's journey in the sequel. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna assume because it since it ends, doesn't it end with a end question mark? No, I guess I made that up. It just it's just ending it with that the teaser yeah. of mm-hmm. Metron. You've been reading yeah. too many what ifs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I I placed a, the end question mark at there uh, that was not there. Yeah. <laughs> so we have uh, still at the X Mansion. They're done with their training for the day. Everyone's trying to sleep, and we start to get these nightmares between the various members of the X-Men and they're seeing G- their former friend and ally Jean, who has passed away after succumbing to like the, the Phoenix force and basically obliterating her out of existence. And we have uh, Kitty pride falls through the floor. Everyone wakes up because everyone's concerned about Kitty because she's the youngest X-Men, which they make it a point to say multiple times in the issue. <laughs> and the f- interesting thing is then it jumps over and then we start to get the new Teen Titans that are also having a couple of these nightmares, specifically uh, Raven starts to have a-, a nightmare. And as she's explaining it, Starfire for some reason knows exactly who the dark Phoenix is and immediately like jumps on to uh, uh, Gar because he starts turning himself into a Phoenix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and she knows the Shi'ar because she knows the backstory with the Shi'ar. I think it's, it's probably, it's the first moment that just does the crossover earth thing that just, immediately says to you like no these they coexist Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so it's a cool moment it takes you by surprise and then we start to get like there's a parademon attack that starts to happen and so you get the the uh more of the dc characters they encounter it and then we're introduced to uh ravik the ravager who i did didn't know anything about before this issue no i did not know do i is there something to know? No, yeah, I, I no, I just, it just, it seems like he's like the second in command to Darkseid in this issue, but he's like a bumbling fool because he keeps messing yes. things up. He yeah. reminded me of the henchmen on Power Rangers, like they, mm-hmm. oh, you know, Rita Repulsa or Lord Zed always yes. had the main ones who looked really scary but could never do anything, and that's kind of how <laughs> I got him, or a Bebop and Rocksteady kind of vibe, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the bumbling henchman is basically what this character is throughout the series. Uh, and then we have Robin, who is out on a mission, encounters uh, uh, Terminator, or the Terminator. They don't even refer to him as Darkseid in the issue, right? He's still just the Terminator at this point. Mm-hmm. Oh, Deathstroke, you mean? Yeah, or sorry, yeah. Deathstroke, yeah. He's still just the Terminator at this point. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, if there had it been the one reference, the one time where they say that it's Slade Wilson, Deathstroke, the Terminator, I was thinking, wait a second, this looks just like Deathstroke, because I hadn't been as familiar with the backstory with that character that they kind of then phase that nickname out for, I guess, obvious reasons, even though yes. he predates the James Cameron Terminator by years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting side story about (laughs) that whole encounter at this time where you find out that Deathstroke is working with Darkseid because he's like, he tells Robin that's a parademon and then it just kind of evolves into this. Here's our master plan. But of course I'm going to knock you out, but I'm not going to kill you, Robin. 
never going to kill you. (laughs) I never want to deal with you, but I won't take you out. Uh, And then, so Robin's passed out and then the teen Titans go to find him and kind of explain really what is going on. After this encounter, once the Titans have regrouped, they end up going to the X mansion and they immediately start attacking Professor Xavier, who mm-hmm. is half asleep. And <laughs> <laughs> kind of the reasoning for it is Starfire wants to put an end to the Dark Phoenix and knows that the X-Men are tied to the Dark Phoenix. But with without kind of even going and asking questions, she just straight up tries to attack Professor X and is immediately knocked out by his power. Yes. But then we get all the other teen titans who come in and they use yeah actually uh, a cyborg uses his white sound generator which just sounded like a, a white noise white machine noise. to me That's what we sleep with the only the only super powered <laughs> that he's able to knock out professor x who knew you only needed a toy that puts babies to sleep to defeat <laughs> professor xavier <laughs> And you, so you have yeah. this this battle, and then out of nowhere, you get uh, the Apocalypse henchmen and the Shock Commandos go into the mansion because their job is to collect the members of the X-Men for a very particular task that is we know is going to happen later in the issue, but you don't know what's going on at this point in the story. And they start to defeat and collect the different members of the Teen Titans along with Professor Xavier, but they keep confusing members of the Teen Titans with X-Men. So they think Cyborg is Colossus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny, this mis- this mistaken identity that's going on. Yeah, that is clever. And our bumbling henchmen will say at one point, well, they all had the same powers. And I was like, well, dude, dude, do they really? Because I, I don't think there's a giant metal. You know, well, you could say maybe Cyborg is Colossus, but then, yeah, you know, who who is the, there? There's a fast one, which they even have to say for Kid Flash. Oh, he just joined the team. Yeah. Well, they say that. They say like, oh, the, the tapes made no mention of him. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> they are acknowledging that some are parallels, but some are not. Yeah. So they're not. That's <laughs> no, no. Right. <laughs> they're all defeated. But Gar is able to kind of stay on the sideline and then he uses his power, but it's really stretching what his power is to make himself look like one of these commandos to go through the boom tube to follow along with his friends. And the the reasoning behind him being able to change his form to make him look like one of these commandos is because they're not human. So mm-hmm. he can make himself look like it, even though he normally just turns himself into an animal. Yes. <laughs> so. Good times but he's there. still a bright green version of one of them, which will actually play a plot point, strangely enough. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so we go through the boom tube. And I want to know what both of you think about this, because I thought it was so strange, is we go through this boom tube. We're now where there's this giant machine. We, tra- we travel over to New Mexico, and there's a giant machine that's supposed to be collecting the Cyforce. It was. It's a Cyf... What did they call it? It's a... Um, Siphon. siphon siphon but like yeah psi dash phon right which was it, that's actually pretty clever i really like i, I kind of like it yeah. <laughs> uh, and the whole point is they're trying to take siphon off all this energy from the dark phoenix in order to resurrect her so they're mm-hmm. going to all these different locations where there's been major events with gene over time and for some reason they've decided to focus on the fact that this area in new mexico is where Jean Grey and Scott Summers hooked up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think it, it flat out says it had sex. Oh, even, it right? says Scott Summers and Jean Grey consummated their love. <laughs> Isn't that like Deathstroke's talking about it? Darkseid's talking about it? Storm talks about it? Like, can you all just mind your own business? Like, you don't need to know the location of where they consummated their love. Yeah. It's a very Claremontian inclusion there just to sprinkle in a little bit of sexy time right (laughs) (laughs) uh but yes of course the place where they consummated their love is where the greatest amounts of dark phoenix energy exists or the energy related to gene at this point Mm -hmm. is, is in this specific area and we learn that this gigantic machine that was created is to house the members of the x-men 
to draw out the memories of Jean in order to help get enough energy to then resurrect the Dark Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the Terminator uses a fear ray on the X-Men. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yep. It's got a fear ray. You know, and one thing that's interesting that Deathstroke slash the Terminator is always saying he's always calling Darkseid the big man mm. and stuff like that. And they haven't ever used Darkseid's name up to this point. And we actually, even though he looks like he's always got the Darkseid silhouette, he's always in the shadows. So I'm wondering if they were trying to keep it kind of a secret until his big reveal, even though it's very well, obvious. Cover, so I'm yeah. I'm gonna I don't know. But no. then why would they not use his name and why do they always keep him in the shadows? Because when we do finally see him, it does feel like it is like a big reveal where he says his name. I was thinking, do maybe Marvel fans not know who he is? So they were maybe playing with that? What do you both think? I think you kind of make a point because when Kitty sees uh, the nightmare she also sees him but you don't see like it's also the what you see is like mm -hmm. very bright teeth in the shadows <laughs> uh, so i'm wondering if if there was a plan to make it like to be this later reveal but then they're like no he's the main villain put him on the cover we need to sell <laughs> yeah. sell issues with mm -hmm. the big bad yeah and we yeah. often know right especially probably then covers there was probably a lot less say that maybe claremont or whoever had had in terms of sculpting those covers right I, yeah it probably came later in production too mm -hmm. so. i do love the wraparound cover though it's fantastic mm -hmm. i love me a good mm -hmm. wraparound cover then after they get enough energy they then resurrect the dark phoenix and then uh, something that i'm not the biggest fan of uh dark side basically talks about now owning the dark phoenix yeah. um <laughs> if you have this individual of immense power and they come back into being i don't know if they would be able to be controlled very easily right <laughs> even the way like it starts with her putting her hand in his like she's the bride of frankenstein mm -hmm. here i was like uh come on when when last we left her she was eating worlds. Yeah. Like she's, she's kind she's got agency. Okay. Let's, let's move on. So she yeah. went from a fiercely independent woman to, yeah. <laughs> to a woman that stands behind a man. Uh, downgrade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and we don't really exactly. see, I mean, I'm not a dark side expert, so, but I, we only see him use his powers a couple of times here. So it's not even super clear how, powerful he is because he is later in the issue defeated by just some of the teen titans and you would think he's basically a god so how could they defeat him so in that way yeah i think it's it's a little unclear he does it definitely seems like he is lesser to the dark phoenix in terms of power set yeah and now with the dark phoenix uh within his grasp he says something that i actually thought was a, a very cool concept for a villain to say is that he wants to spread his domain to all realms of reality and then to imagination. Hmm. And I'm curious if Claremont had an idea of like what imaginary realms he would have mm -hmm. wanted to see dark side and the dark Phoenix take over. Yeah. Or I wonder if that was some of the setup that for the second issue because if you think again about going past the source wall, the source wall in DC has often been involved with like the crises and there's usually like some sort of meta stuff going on with it. So maybe the sequel was going to get a little meta in some ways and, and somehow have his, his desire spread through like all of these universes, meaning Marvel and DC. And that's what he meant by imagination. Yeah. The very interesting inclusion. It is. It is. Darkseid now has Dark Phoenix in his clutches. They leave, and the shackles that are holding both the X-Men and the Teen Titans release, leaving them kind of floating through space. And they're going to lose oxygen within an hour or so, they say. Uh, they then are able to catapult themselves using some of their abilities to find something that's floating out in space, and it's the Mobius chair. <laughs> well, but, but what's happening on the Mobius chair when they find it? I think that's the best part. 
is that you have Beast Boy and Kitty Pride making out. Like oh, they yeah. are full on. She is straddling him. Yes. They are making out on this chair. <laughs> Mobius chair's got to get some action too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, we going back to sexy time. Yeah, there's a lot going on there because then Colossus is getting jealous of of kitty and then he speaks in russian so that um that that he gets kissed by um by cory starfire Starfire kisses him but to absorb his ability to speak russian not just to like kiss him so yeah there's a uh, definitely that claremont i'm gonna inject a little bit of sex even though the fate of the entire universe real and imaginary is at stake here there's still time for everyone to flirt with each other (laughs) and kind of creepy though at this point isn't kitty still a teenager yeah oh yeah yeah she's she's i still canonically 14 Mm -hmm. or 13 or 14 as she is when she starts on the team right and how old is colossus yeah he's of age yeah uh not the like i think the relationship later uh is interesting but the earlier on stuff is a little creepy not not yeah yeah beast boy is a better match for (laughs) both they're both they're both kids yes that makes sense and gar i think throughout this whole issue is my vip i think he's just got some great lines and even here when yeah he's he's just he's he's a really he lightens it up because some of the i think if i had one one drawback of this is that some of the characters like storm yeah, and Diana Troy really get almost nothing to do. Like they're they're o- almost background characters, but he definitely is able to liven this up a lot. Yes, a hundred percent. And so it's while Kitty and Gar are in the chair doing what they're doing that Kitty says, <laughs> "I just want to be home," or "I just want to go home." And then the mm-hmm. Morbius chair, the Mobius chair disappears, and then it reappears, and they're like, "What in the world just happened?" And then this plan goes into effect where Gar is going to turn into a giant version of Lockheed, which I found very fun. (laughs) Yeah. Which Lockheed didn't even exist as a real entity at this point. He's still the fairy tale version, which is why Colossus says like, oh, I thought Lockheed was our secret little thing because it's the fairy tale Lockheed. We haven't met the dragon Lockheed yet. Oh, that's so So, cool. I didn't know that. It's a Claremontian Easter egg, of course, where you have to read every single thing he's written in order to understand it. Right. So the way they work around all of them being able to be teleported is a guard turns into a giant Lockheed holds the chair in his claw and then everyone else gets on top of Gar and then they're able to (laughs) teleport and they go to New York City where the Philharmonic concert is actually going on at that time. Yeah. (laughs) In Central Park. In Central Park. With fireworks. And and like millions of people. (laughs) But luckily the story then quickly changes to they go deep underground because that is where the nefarious plans of Darkseid and the Dark Phoenix are occurring. Uh, so getting away from where the majority of the people are, they go down there and then we get another encounter with the Terminator and the commandos versus our heroes. I actually didn't know this. So Starfire is using some attacks and they call that it's stellar energy. And it actually makes Jean, so Dark Phoenix, stronger using mm-hmm. it against her, mm-hmm. which I, I honestly had never even thought of like what type of power Starfire had. I just know she shoots beams. Right. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, I guess it's in her name, Starfire. And I guess if Dark Phoenix uh, gained energy by eating stars, then mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we get Dark Phoenix. She creates uh, a hell pit and then is going to send a Phoenix bolt to strike the Earth's, Earth's core, then starting this change of the Earth into the new apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> the plan is really convoluted, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> There's even a diagram yeah. of the bolt going in. Yeah. When you got the included diagram into your plot line, it might be a little bit uh, out there. Uh, the cool thing, though, is this Dark Phoenix actually gives a name to this new team. She calls them the X Titans. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, which sadly they then don't use in Amalgam. They no. make them JLX. Right. Which would have been X-Titans. So there's this big, the big old fight, and then we have Professor X and Raven on the Mobius chair. They attack Phoenix with essentially the power of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have Raven, who cares <laughs> for all of the members of her team, wants to protect them. You have Professor X, who is more or less the father figure of all of these younger uh, mutant heroes, caring about those individuals, and then sending this blast into the dark Phoenix, which then kind of throws her off her game to the point where she might disappear from this realm. Yeah. And I thought it was a really smart choice to use Raven in that way, because they even talk about here, the the comparison between her and the Phoenix of this half good, half bad quality. And they're both birds even. So they they have that kind of strong (laughs) connection. So I thought, yeah, I thought it was like, Oh yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it even terrified Raven because she said in one of the encounters with Phoenix is that she felt like uh, Jean was almost able to turn her evil. There there was mm-hmm. this fear of yeah. that dark, the Dark Phoenix would be able to uh, essentially jumpstart that component within her that is more of her father Trigun and that thus turning her evil, which she has done before in the comics. And it was just this great fear she had. But then it turns to she uses what she was most scared of against the Dark Phoenix, um, showing that she did have so much care and love for those around her. And that's what is more or less the catalyst for the downfall of the Dark Phoenix in the story. Yeah, that's a cool detail to Raven you're adding that required, obviously, Claremont either talk to Perez and Wolfman about this issue or he just read all of Teen Titans to prepare but he he found things in those characters that he hadn't been writing to pull out to make them really important to the story so that's a great point about Raven so we have uh, in order to stay within this corporeal realm Phoenix realizes she needs to absorb the bolt which she had just shot into the earth in order to have enough power to remain. But, and after she does that, she learns that it's still not enough. And so she starts to target uh, a particular individual and that's going to be Cyclops. And she kind of does this downward spiral into Cyclops. And then we get a really interesting like Phoenix force Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A very like Avengers versus X-Men when Cyclops is the Phoenix. It's very cool. I loved that panel and seeing it again, I, I had not remembered it was in this. Neither did I. And it, it's funny because I feel like the design is like you just said, is very similar to that storyline we get years later down the line. Yeah. 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 30 years later. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Mm-hmm. During all of this, Darkseid is obviously losing his mind because the individual that he needed to uh, take care of his plans is no longer listening to him and is kind of going off script. And so Darkseid starts to go after the Teen Titans and Starfire is able to cover the eyes of Darkseid and use her powers to nullify uh, the, what is it called? the, the, the Unless they don't um, call it the Omega Stare. They call it the Omega... I think it might just be like Omega Beams. Omega Effect. Omega Effect, yes. <laughs> the Omega Effect. And it's almost like she she like uses she she's blasting and he's blasting at the same time. So it's almost like his Omega Effect like bounces back inside his his head kind of thing, which is a cool, cool idea. Yeah, he, he doesn't feel too great after that. <laughs> he's, he's a little hurt. <laughs> Cyclops, who is now empowered with the Phoenix Force, then focuses his anger and resentment towards Darkseid, sending the Dark Phoenix out of himself, which then sends her and Darkseid across the universe in the blink of an eye to the wall, which uh, we saw at the beginning of the story. At this point, they just disappear and we have our heroes remaining uh, now a little bit battered, but survived and in one piece mm-hmm. and of course everyone watching the philharmonic thinks it's just a firework <laughs> happening and yes. an odd extra detail that wasn't really needed but i think anyway. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's going clap 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 as as they watch <laughs> yeah and while, while all of our heroes are there kind of talking and discussing with one another it's kind of happy happy times again kitty is now 
next to Colossus and Gar is over on the side doing his own thing. Uh, but you have Gar also talking. And at one point he brings up Amalgam. He says Amalgam in this issue, mm-hmm. which didn't ha- doesn't happen until 1996. But I think it's so fun that in this world where you have quite a few of the X-Men Teen Titan characters that will later kind of become an amalgamation form. They're here uh, to, together, just throwing that in there. And I don't know if that was intentional or just happenstance, but I thought it was a very fun detail. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's, I think there's a possibility. We know that these creators mine the work for, mm-hmm. for ways of bringing things back in and, event titles are things that were referenced years prior. So I could see someone having read that every sentient being is an amalgam of positive and negative from this issue and thinking, Oh, there we go. There's our combined universe. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and the, the last shot of this issue is going to be back at the wall. Metron. Now, like you said earlier, Rob Metron finally comes back. He sits back in his chair. <laughs> He's staring at the wall and we now see that, uh, just like predecessors that try to break through the wall that have now become a part of it, a giant version of Darkseid's head is now a part of the wall. Yeah. And is that who he's talking to? Or do we think he's talking to someone that is the mystery yet to unfold? Or is he talking to himself? Although he says farewell. So. Yeah, right. he's just, yeah my, uh, my thanks old friend for oh, revealing friend. the answer. Yes. So I think he is talking to Darkseid because Darkseid was also the okay. one that kind of enabled him to go through the wall in the very first pages. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So very interesting storyline. So overall thoughts, Rob, you said earlier, this is actually the first time you've read through this story. Yes. So what, what did you think of it? So I, I think the thing I liked a lot about it was that it avoided doing the very cliched thing that we talked about that a lot of these other ones do, which is, okay, they have to fight and then they're going to become friends and then there's another villain. And yes, we get that one sequence where the Teen Titans battle Professor X, but it's literally about a page and that's it. And then we're done. And I thought that was very freeing for this story. Okay, we we because as, as we were saying, we know what those other kind of scenarios are going to be. And I think the other thing is that... W- Claremont and team knew they only had a certain amount of pages to get this done, even though it is oversized, it's still limited. So by not needing to set up this, Oh, what, how are the X-Men now in the teen Titans universe or, or vice versa, have them just exist. That allowed them to really use all those pages. They didn't need to use uh, several pages just to explain how one teleported to another universe and stuff like that so uh, for me it actually broke a lot of the expectations that i have with these kind of stories nice Gita, what what number read through of this issue was it for you i don't know you know i it's countless in some ways because this was a favorite issue of mine as a kid i've had it for many years so since the 80s and i loved it a lot i probably haven't read it though in at least 10 15 years now so this was really a uh felt like the first time going back into it and i think the thing i loved about it as a kid is what i really love about it now and it's not a surprise why we host the show we do i love exactly that it starts with them just coexisting because it then opens all these questions in your mind that are fun. I don't see them as uh, loose threads. I see them as fun things, like the fact that Corey knows who Lalandra is and therefore knows who the Phoenix is. It's like, oh, well, then where were the mm-hmm. Teen Titans when that happened? You know, like it, it makes you want to know about this world. And so it's cool that they don't use some device to tell the story and then to put it back in either, right? They leave it open it just starts on this earth and it ends on this earth. So they don't put it back away and restore the status quo. Having said that, I think that it's way too dense. I, I think that the big philosophical, uh, epic galactic terror, cosmic terror that Claremont wants to do with Darkseid and Phoenix 
kind of takes away from the character beats that I think we could have gotten mm-hmm. a whole lot more mm-hmm. of if there had been something a little more grounded and maybe Deathstroke was in there to try to create some like grounded conflict so that you could really just see the Titans and the X-Men like be witty together, yeah. flirt together, yeah. like see all of that stuff that you want a lot of from these two teams that were totally inspired by each other and built on each other over many years. Yeah. So I I almost wish there was more of it, in fact, or he pared the story down one or the other. Like I was saying to you before, there's a few characters that have almost nothing to do. Uh, Nightcrawler and Storm on the X-Men side are basically just there. Uh, Wally West has, I think, like two lines in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Wonder Girl also. Even Robin, who is, you know, you think of as this leader, has almost nothing to do. It would almost have been better if they had removed those characters maybe all together. And maybe as you're saying, Guido, that would have allowed for a little extra space because the stuff with with Gar, the stuff with Kitty is great. You know, Professor X and Starfire all get a decent amount to do. And maybe if those other characters had just said, okay, you know, we don't have to worry about them. It'll allow for more banter room and some of the deeper stuff, especially with Cyclops who obviously pay plays such a great role in the climax, but it feels a little Deus es Machina esque because we don't really get to sit with that character and how he really feels. Yeah. I, I found myself, less seeing a lot of these characters having an individual moment. And it was more of, I I felt like I just experienced the X-Men and the Teen Titans going through something together. It it, it felt like entities versus, versus individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. And this comic in particular holds a special place in my heart because this was the first uh, Marvel DC crossover I ever knew about. I I was getting back into comics and I went to my local shop and I was just flipping through their single issues and I saw this and I loved X-Men and I loved Teen Titans. <laughs> and so it blew my mind that there was this crossover between the two of them. So I I love the art and as dense as it as it gets, I, I can't help but to smile with many of the elements in the story. It's just <laughs> for me, it's just fun to, to return to uh, to kind of feel that excitement that I had when I first found it in the back stock. Yeah, well, and the art, I mean, we've talked about it a bit, but the art and that cover that you mentioned are so good. They're great. They're they're. It's great action. It's great with all that cosmic stuff. And then all the characters look like the way you'd want them to look. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, whether you're a Titans fan or an X-Men fan, I think you get this era's at least version of those characters perfectly. So it's so well done. Yeah. Is there anything you have you haven't said about the crossover that you'd like to throw in right here at the end? I want that sequel. Seriously. I'm still I'm still open to it. So I know that uh, we'd have to see if there's an outline somewhere and get someone to write it. But I think the sequel would be great. Oh, I was just going to say, did we mention what the sequel was? So it was supposed to be uh, the brother, brother blood and the hellfire club are going to team up versus the two teams. Yeah. I think, I think the thing I could see more in a sequel or even a spinoff is actually going back to Kitty and Gar. I think they have a lot of chemistry and it reminds me of in the amalgam universe when Robin and Jubilee get together and they have a lot of fun. And there's something about these younger characters that are a little bit more irreverent than their older counterparts and it's it's just fun and as soon as you go oh robin and jubilee makes complete sense and here also it's one can go through walls one can change into something else there's almost a combination there in that they can both be a little inaccessible in that way and and being the younger person on the well i guess all the teen titans are younger but gar even reads even younger than the other one so i love to see just a spin-off with those characters uh, that gives me an idea that now I want an issue with Gar, Kitty, Robin, and Jubilee on a double date. Yes, and, totally. And oh, just God, yes. whatever mayhem they w- that would ensue with mm-hmm. that double date. <laughs> I need it. 
Yes, please. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, it has been an absolute pleasure to have both of you on here. So how about you just let our listeners know where they can find you, uh, your podcast, as well as on social media. Yeah, well, our podcast comes out every Monday and you can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, Dear Watchers, that's D-E-A-R, Dear Watchers. And we're on all social media as Dear Watchers, <laughs> one word. Perfect. I strongly recommend everyone listen to the show. It's one of my favorites to throw on. I am a big fan of crossovers and multiversal, omniversal stories. So Dear Watchers is the perfect place where I can get my fix if I haven't gotten uh, a, a multiverse story in a while. So can't recommend it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you. It's time to close the book on the uncanny X-Men and the new Teen Titans. So until next time, this is Lance. And this is Rob. This is Guido. Reminding you that just like our love for George Perez and his career, the crossovers are infinite.